When you hear the DoD talk about focusing on climate change and uh, focusing on domestic terrorism as the number one threat, that's just plain nonsense. If China is not the number one threat, I don't know where these people have been living, but they're not in this, on the same planet. Today I sit down with Nicholas Cheyan, former chief software officer of the U.S. Air Force and Space Force. The best and the brightest are leaving the Department of Defense, he says, while the Chinese military is outpacing America and aggregating enormous amounts of data through programs like TikTok, which can also be used to manipulate Americans. The face prints and voice prints, all the applications installed on your phone, who you're talking to, what you like, what you don't like, what you're searching. With the volume of data we're talking about, this is what's going to be powering the next generation of artificial intelligence and machine learning weapons, actual physical weapons. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Nicolas Chayen, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you back. It's one year now since you left the Air Force as the Chief Software Officer of the Air Force. You've been thinking a lot about something I've been thinking a lot about, which is TikTok and its uh, you know, influence on American society, incredible influence on American society. I was just reading that there's more viewing time of TikTok now than there is of YouTube by Americans, which is just kind of unbelievable to me. This is what you say about TikTok. You say it is potentially the most powerful weapon of mass manipulation and misinformation ever created by the CCP. Okay, so that, that's a big statement. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you look at what the CCP has been doing for many years now, information and the control of information is probably the cornerstone of uh, being able to push their agenda to uh, the American people. And so what you're gonna find is now 40% uh, of kids under 24 uh, are using TikTok as uh, the way to search uh, for, for information. So you can imagine that it enables the CCP now to control what you're gonna get to see, what you're gonna be able to uh, find out about and uh, potentially censor information as well. Well, it's very interesting what you're talking about because typically when we think of TikTok, we think of basically data issues. There's a ton of evidence showing that American data is available to Chinese censors, Chinese agencies. Um, but what you're talking about is something very different. It's the ability of the Chinese regime to potentially influence Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, the data aspect is very important too. I think the, the issue you're gonna see with TikTok is it's multifaceted. Effectively, you're gonna find uh, the data issue with uh, potential access to personal information, including face prints and voice prints, which can uh, ultimately give access to future payment systems. Uh, if you go to China, you can authenticate and pay with your face. One day this technology will come here and now Effectively, China has all the data points of your face and voice to be able to use that uh, for any kind of uh, uh, fake payment system. And so that's going to be a real issue as well. But when you start compounding the data aspect and knowing the people and what they think, what they like, what they are watching, and the ability to promote content and filter content, that's where you're gonna see things like what we've seen with the labs in China with the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus, where effectively China was powerful enough to convince American companies to ban the discussion around whether or not the virus came from um, China's lab. And you can imagine now that if they control the main platform of information used by kids under 24, 
they don't have to ask anybody. They can just decide to ban it themselves. So there's been these studies that there's actually a Chinese study that came out uh, that, uh, and I, this is kind of fascinating to me that they would publish this, perhaps that they were wanting to, you know, create a rationale for the population because they've actually created for the Chinese version of TikTok Duyan, they basically created a new set of rules, uh, which is which is really interesting. Well, China knows how bad these kind of platforms are for the younger generations. Uh, they've done a lot of study and they know it's actually classified as uh, an addiction. Uh, for kids under 14, uh, they can only watch Du Yen for 40 minutes and it's banned at night because they know particularly at night how bad this is for the brain, uh, particularly uh, the brain of kids that are still growing and learning and want to really have that uh, uh, mitigation aspect of not being able to be on the phone 24-7, uh, which is effectively what you see with kids here. And of course, it's interesting, right, that China decided not to use the same platform with the same rules across uh, China and the rest of the world. The, it, there's only, only two versions. There's the Chinese version, Duyan, and TikTok for the rest of the world. People argue it's because of the language. That's nonsense, obviously, because TikTok is in 125 plus languages. So it's never been about languages. It's been about the ability for the CCP to set different rules when it comes to the ability to um, pre prevent that kind of risk to the Chinese people. But there's a couple of things here. They also have a particular interest in controlling what information gets to the Chinese people, right? In fact, they, they excel at this. Yes. Right. So this is the, the, there's, there's multiple purposes happening here. Yeah, but you know, they, they probably have the same intent for what people get to see outside of, of China as well. Of course, they want to have a tighter control when it comes to the, the Chinese market. But at the end of the day, what's interesting is even if you look at the algorithm itself, it's going to be promoting educational content, it's going to be promoting historical content uh, instead of you know, dense moves that we see here in the US and in Europe. It's not an accident. You know, what they decide to promote is specifically designed uh, to pull us down instead of pushing us up. What criteria uh, are you seeing are being used by the regime in terms of what content they choose? It, it seems very clear that they're looking at what's going to be able to educate kids to learn and be more efficient, be able to learn new skills. And also, uh, obviously, when it comes to history, uh, control the narrative around you know, chi uh, China being the new world leader, and more importantly, uh, America being the enemy. And also, um, and censoring you know, whatever kind of negative, for example, right now, right, there's huge protests that have been happening as a result of the zero COVID policy. There's still tens of millions of people locked down, and some of those people are going crazy. I guess you don't see a lot of that on Duya. No, you're not going to find that, uh, that's for sure. And that's kind of, that's always been the case with the Great Firewall and the ability of China to control uh, that access to information. And, and it, I find it interesting, right, that China has been able to ban effectively all American companies from doing really meaningful business uh, when it comes to, to technology in China. But yet, you know, we're completely okay with uh, um, China coming into the United States with their uh, solutions. And, and no one is thinking twice about the, not only the technological risk of capturing all this data and the ability to track what people do, they are able to not only see all the applications installed on your phone, everything that's going on in terms of communication on your phone, who you're talking to, what you like, what you don't like, what you're searching, uh, the amount of data that they're capturing b beside the, the face prints and voice prints, which by the way, is already 
pretty scary to me. That really tells you that the uh, aggregate of information is beyond any, any kind of comparable application would gather. In terms of the gathering of this information, you know, there's all sorts of possible uses. You were, you were discussing a fake payment system. Do you mean like basically now they have your biometrics that you would use to access your phone and so forth? So in the future, you know, it might not have anything to do with TikTok. Someone wants to impersonate you, they've got the goods to impersonate you, basically. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it's multifaceted, right? You can think of uh, the ability to infiltrate American companies. Let's say you want to steal some technology from an American company. Uh, you're going to be able to know exactly what the people behind the company like, what they're listening to, what books they read, right? So now you can pretend to be their friends, having the same uh, passions, right? So you can show up as a, an intelligence group. You can, you can re-engage with those people and have a, a, a deep relationship uh, thanks to the information you gather, right? So it's, it's, it's really enabling them as an intelligence community to have access to pretty much everything about, um, you know, probably 40% plus of uh, America. So it's, it's really very significant. I, I don't think there is any kind of technology ever that's been able to gather that kind of volume of information about people so they can pinpoint down to individuals in a company uh, for cyber attacks, right? You can now target people. Uh, like you said, on the face and the voice prints, you can literally start using this for deep fakes. Uh, so you can generate fake videos of people uh, with their voice, with their face, saying things that they've never said. That could be used for many different uh, use cases. They download all your contacts from your phone, all the applications installed on your phone. Um, you know, they, they, they potentially have access to biomet biometrics as well, so it could be uh, all the way to, to fingerprints. I mean, this is, this is really giving effectively entire access to your life. And when you, th when you take a step back and you think back of how you use your phone on a day-to-day -day basis for banking and healthcare and email access and everything you do on your phone today, um, you're effectively giving uh, the entirety of your life information to the CCP. So, you know, some people in the U.S. might say, well, this is just the same type of information we're actually giving to Facebook and Twitter and these big tech giants. And, you know, although what you're describing sounds more invasive, but then, you know, people will, would say, well, actually, it really is more invasive than you're aware of. So it is definitely a little bit more invasive. When you read the terms and conditions of most of the, the Facebook and Twitter and other uh, social media companies, you're not going to find uh, as deep of an access. Uh, and it's definitely concerning. I think a lot of people wonder why should a few selected few um, private companies have so much and, and individuals leading uh, these companies have access to such uh, important information. And, and definitely, I think Congress should start taking action when it comes to, to uh, data uh, governance and privacy and cyber breaches. There is very little requirement when it comes to a company getting breached in terms of reporting and uh, making sure that the, the, the breach is handled the way it should be handled, uh, legally speaking, and also when it comes to the impact to individuals. Uh, you know, it's interesting because Europe uh, created uh, a law, uh, GDPR, to stop you know, enforcing uh, proper behavior of companies. It's a little bit ex extreme, and I think there's a balance there. Uh, it's working pretty well at the end of the day, uh, and yet, you know, the United States is still not really uh, paying attention much to, to the value of data. China, uh, in 2016, created the Shanghai Data Exchange, which is effectively enabling China to access uh, both American and European uh, companies' data because they are smart enough to uh, enable uh, access to a platform, pretty much like a trading platform for stock, but for data, where U.S. companies and, and uh, 
of course, Chinese companies and European companies are able to sell access to their data and trade it. And of course, anytime they do that, uh, China and the CCP is getting a free copy of that data, getting more access to data. So why do we care? We care because um, with the volume of data we're talking about, this is what's going to be powering the next generation of artificial intelligence and machine learning weapons. And not just for um, you know, basic use cases of uh, spying on people and tracking, you know, tracking faces and things like that, but it's also now being used for the next generation uh, weapons of actual uh, physical weapons. Well, so what is the relationship? Maybe you can sort of expand on this. What is the relationship with the amount of data and how is that connected with these actual, with the use of actual weapons? It's not obvious. The more volume of data you have and the, the pace is so important when it comes to teaching and training AI models. So the, the AI models are able to, just like you see with Tesla, right? They are gathering so much data coming from the cars to be able to uh, optimize the self-driving features of the car. And they're capturing uh, information about uh, everything uh, around the surrounding of the car, what's happening in, in real life, people crossing, dogs, pets, anything, right? At, at first, you may even think some of the data they're gathering doesn't really matter when it comes to the, the car itself, the, uh, the ability to detect proactively uh, maintenance issues. So, so all these items are really enabling the AI to become better and faster. And, and then it's, it's, it's a compounded, compounded uh, effect. The more data you have, the faster you can train, the faster you train, and the faster you deploy in real life with real use of that AI capability, the more it's going to learn. And so the more data you have, the just better capability you can end up building. And that becomes part of uh, pretty much every aspect of life. When we put AI on a jet in the Air Force with very basic AI uh, capabilities, we were able to see that uh, the AI was able to defeat the human pilots every single time. Why? AI is able to, to do things that the human brain is not able to comprehend. And um, it's, it's also, obviously, the, in the use case of the pilot, it doesn't care about its own safety. And so it's going to take risks and do things that uh, pilots are taught not to do, both for their safety and the safety of the aircraft. But uh, effectively, uh, the AI is able to toe with the line at a much more granular way that a human would not be able to even comprehend because the, the human brain does not have the capacity of uh, analyzing all this data and understand what's going on in real time. It's just too much and too, too soon and too fast for the human brain to handle. So let me get this straight. This mass data gathering, which effectively TikTok facilitates for the CCP, is directly useful for the CCP in terms of developing warfighting technology. It's used for every aspect of artificial intelligence, machine learning, AI weapons. It's going gonna, it's gonna to really empower them, both in terms of spying, stealing intellectual property, which is, by the way, uh, something that is vastly underreported. The FBI director uh, finally came out after overclassifying this issue for years, uh, disclosing that uh, you know, what we see coming from the CCP when it comes to uh, the CCP targeting American companies and stealing both uh, IP through um, actual uh, individuals embedded inside of companies in the U.S., but also through uh, cyber means, has never been as high as it is. Hundreds of new cases a day uh, opened um, by the FBI because of breaches. And that gathering of intell intellectual property combined with that data is really creating a, a massive national security risk. I think it's probably the 
largest national security risk we've ever seen uh, in the last 20 years. Why do you think that America somehow is asleep at the wheel here? Well, I think uh, the, the first aspect is you, you, you're going to find that Congress still struggle to turn on their phone, let alone understand the, the power of data. And so, you know, when you, when you take a step back and you look at uh, the lack of understanding of cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, um, you know, software in general, and, and you look at hypersonic, you look at all these quantum compute risk and, and the fact that uh, very soon, probably within 10 years, there's going to be the ability for quantum computer to crack all encryption being used right now by the United States, uh, both on the national security uh, side and, and the commercial companies uh, as well, uh, payment systems and so on. There is really a lack of understanding of technology, uh, probably because Congress has no term limit and you end up seeing you know, uh, people that just should not even be in the jobs. Uh, and so I think that the first step is going to be about awareness. Um, we also overclassify these issues way too much. You see, you've seen the DOD and the, the FBI uh, with the DOJ overclassify these um, and, and effectively Americans are not even tracking the issues. And so I always felt that uh, if we were just to disclose a little bit more about volumes of attacks and, and the, the means of attacks, we don't need to disclose the who and the, and the what. But if we can just disclose what's happening um, and really raise awareness, I think that would be the biggest impact because what you're going to see is American companies stepping up and willing to come and help uh, the U.S. government to do better. What you see right now is most companies refusing to do business with the DoD when, of course, in China they don't have a choice, so they're going to get access to best of breed uh, commercial capabilities. So effectively, if you look at the commercial side, uh, the commercial American companies are leading compared to the Chinese companies, but the U.S. government, particularly the DoD, is behind because we don't have access to best of breed American companies where the CCP has access to best of breed Chinese. Uh, so even if they are number two, the, the military side is clearly number one because the DoD does not have access to the American uh, technologies. And so you end up seeing a, a, at least a 10 to 15 years uh, gap of adoption of, of innovative technologies. You're basically saying that the U.S. Department of Defense does not have access to the best, say, AI technology that Google and some of these, you know, basically leaders in the technology have, whereas in China they do. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. Effectively, what you see is uh, most innovative AI companies in, in the United States are refusing to do business with the DoD. I tried to convince many of them, spending many, many hours uh, of my week uh, in discussion uh, including with the large companies like the Google of the world to the smallest uh, you know, startups creating a tons of innovation. And really what you find is they're going to be willing to do uh, business with DoD when it comes to the business side of DoD, so emails and management of people and you know, uh, optimizing this kind of uh, uh, basic uh, business uh, concepts. But when it comes to the war fighting side, which is really what matters. The DoD is not an organization to manage people. It's a war-fighting organization. If you don't have access to best of breed, you don't have the ability to create the next generation AI weapons. No one wants to use them. And I think the issue is you see people living in this Kumbaya universe where, uh, you know, particularly in the Silicon Valley, where they feel like they don't have to um, embrace the fact that we need to have these weapons uh, just as a de deterrence. No one wants to use it just like nuclear weapons, but we must have it. Uh, we cannot be the only one without it. And so what you've been hearing in the last you know, three, four years in the Pentagon, particularly from people that were sent from the Google of the world, is the fact that we should focus on ethics. 
and the bulk of the funding of these uh, AI teams in DoD, instead of uh, focusing on, on AI weapon capabilities, without going to crazy things like you know having weapons completely managed by AI shooting you know targets. We're not talking even about advanced uh, technologies like that. We're talking about very basic AI weapons that could just proactively target better with human uh, deciding whether or not to shoot. Um, so there is really no risk in terms of. Uh, you know, AI taking control of the world or any, anything crazy like that. And so at the end of the day, what you're going to find is these companies focus on pushing people to talk about ethics, on why we should not uh, do any work with AI weapons. And meanwhile, of course, China couldn't care less and is embracing their advantage. And, and it's very clear that any kind of AI-enabled weapon will, without a doubt, win over uh, a human-powered design. And what about uh, these companies, the American companies in China? Because, for example, I'm aware that Google has an AI lab in China, and actually, as does Microsoft. It's always interesting to me that uh, you see Americans complaining pretty heavily when it comes to interacting with the D Department of Defense in the, in the U.S., but yet they, they have no care for the engagements happening in China. I think, I think overall, I think there's a really uh, poor understanding of what China is doing. Uh, and there, there's a lot of discussions when it comes to the fact that China is at war with us. Uh, some people dismiss it, not understanding what's going on. And I think really uh, it's all about educating the public on what China has been doing for the last 30 years. This is not something new. It's just that we empowered China now to be effectively controlling not just uh, uh, many of the critical uh, uh, manufacturing, but also you look at you look at. Uh, uh, medicine. We can't even have uh, uh, penicillin created here in the United States anymore. You see the same with chips. That's why Taiwan is so important. You've seen uh, for once Congress waking up and doing some meaningful action with a new law, you know, investing in U.S. made uh, uh, chips, 52 billion, I believe, uh, on chips. Uh, that's a good baby step. But when you look at how much China is spending on chips, that's still way, way too little. Uh, not to mention, you know, when the government spends money, a good 80% is wasted anyway, it's not going to the right place. So I don't know how much of that is going to come to meaningful innovations. But uh, at the end of the day, when you take a step back and you look at the importance of Taiwan, if, if for some reason something happens in Taiwan, I can tell you uh, most of the uh, critical infrastructure and, and also um, critical industries will be completely 100% disrupted. There is no backup plan. From what I understand, uh, TSMC, which is this major premier chip manufacturer in Taiwan, is actually building a factory in the U.S. as we speak. That's a good step, right? But, but at the end of the day, if you look at the, the, the broader landscape of, of chip ma making in, in Taiwan, if, if something was to disrupt the supply chain in Taiwan, um, none of this will matter. It's not going it, to, it's a rounding error. Uh, compared to the volume we're talking about. And, and if you look at automotive, you look at pretty much every market on the planet. We, we, uh, we underestimate how much we depend on chips. I think people just think of chips like uh, computers and uh, maybe uh, uh, they don't realize that it's, it's effectively a piece of all the Internet of Things devices you use from, uh, uh, from uh, your, your small uh, uh, thermostat to your car to planes to, to pretty much everything that we consume. Uh, and, and technology is such a, a central piece of, uh, of life. I think people would not 
know what to do without it. So all of these devices, Internet of Things devices especially, are, are gathering data, and that data is fed uh, into the companies that, that, I guess, govern those devices or create those devices. And then that data is collected and then managed and sold in places like this Shanghai Data Exchange that you mentioned earlier. Now, again, you know, how is it that these companies that are working, which is you know, a great many in the Shanghai Data Exchange, imagine that the CCP isn't involved in using their data for its own purposes in the process? Are, are there any safeguards? There's no safeguards, but I think they don't really care. I think it's all about profits. They want to go after this massive uh, Chinese market. Uh, they also uh, want to be um, part of this broader ecosystem and, and quite honestly, it's very difficult for some of these companies to produce the, uh, the capabilities and products without uh, using China manufacturing. And, and we kind of created that, right? So we, we empowered China to become the manufacturing giant they are today. We're believing we could not do it elsewhere or, or believing we couldn't do it here in the United States, which is probably uh, completely wrong. Uh, but now, effectively, it's what's happening. And so you see companies just focus on profits. You know, another thing about TikTok, right, because of it, this incredible amount of data that it sort of sucks in to itself, it allows for this incredibly targeted advertising. And I think it's become the biggest advertising market. Do I have that right? In the yeah, America? I think it's the largest. Just the concept of that is mind-blowing. And then again, this is something that the CCP could have direct control over. Not could have. I, you know, I think it's pretty uh, clear they, they do, but, but it's also interesting that we are effectively um, funding their growth. And so the, the advertising uh, revenue is just uh, effectively fueling the next innovation and the next generation uh, capabilities coming from China. You know, something just struck me, right? Um, the, one of the effects of the shelter in place or otherwise known as lockdown policies in a lot of the world, especially the technologically enabled world, was that people spent a ton more time online and viewing advertising and so forth. So this, it, there seems to be a connection here. Oh yeah, it's a win-win, <laughs> it's a win-win for China. You know, they, people are gonna spend more time online, they're gonna live in this parallel universe. You see companies investing in metaverse and people are disconnecting from real life for living in this uh, dream, dream uh, uh, not come true, but uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's effectively creating sheeps. You know, it's, it's designed to make the human brain um, less, um, uh, focused on on trying to solve problems and and it, it, it's crazy how uh, you can see the population now being okay with accepting uh, those lockdowns those limitation of freedom and it's all part of the same uh, strategy to make effectively uh, us uh, either uh, dumber or, or at the very least uh, less willing to to fight back we know on the record that Silicon Valley executives you know prohibit their kids from using social media. There's also uh, evidence that shows that these th many of these technologies were designed to be addictive. Should everyone be banning social media for their kids and reducing their own use then? I think there's moderation for everything. I certainly would not use TikTok, that's for sure. I, you know, I, I certainly would want to moderate um, the consumption. And look, maybe China is, is pretty smart about it. Limiting um, you know, to 40 minutes to kids under 14 and banning at night is probably, probably the right number. Maybe we should just for once uh, steal their own concepts. 
It's like, it, it, it's fascinating to me because where they're also describing video gaming as a kind of spiritual opium, right? I remember there was something about that a while back in the state media. So they're, in some way, they're trying to protect their population from the same, from the impacts that are happening here, but they're not actually looking to have a critically thinking population. I think they're looking to have a compliant population. I think they're competing against two different uh, objectives. Um, but at the same time, they want smart people. And so you want to you want to push them to to be able to learn and innovate. And so there's you know, 120 million uh, Chinese uh, educated in science and technology. That's just a third of the United States. That's who we're competing against. And the, the, the higher the number g grows, the less likely we're going to be able to compete just by sheer volume. So then we have to be smarter. We have to be uh, willing to to do differently. We have to be able to be more innovative somehow with less volume. And, and as you know, the world is pretty much a volume game. And, and so it, it's very difficult, you know, competing against uh, a, a, such a number of people. Uh, you've seen India doing very well. Uh, if you look at the, most of the Fortune 500, India um, has, you know, most CIOs, CEOs, CTOs, um, you know, they are very good at, you know, bringing top talent and, and uh, empowering them across the world to become the world leaders. So this is something you're basically saying that we, we have to figure out here, right? Uh, if, we, if we don't, I don't know how we're gonna be able to, to compete and still be, still be relevant. You know, I always tell people uh, when it comes to um, the DoD potentially getting breached uh, by cyber means, I'm very concerned about cybersecurity, but there's one thing that worries me more than uh, the DoD getting breached is the DoD becoming irrelevant and no one is even trying to hack us. Uh, there is nothing worse than being irrelevant, and and we're getting close to that because we're you know we we have a population that's divided. The politics has been nonsense for the last you know few years is getting worse you know than ever, um, and then you have effectively more time focused on the wrong the wrong problems. You know when you hear the DoD talk about uh, focusing on climate change and. Uh, you know, focusing on uh, domestic terrorism as the number one threat, um, that's just plain nonsense. That's not what we should be focusing on as a, you know, Department of Defense protecting America. That's not, you know, if, if China is not the number one threat, I don't know where these people have been living, but they're not in this, on the same planet. Well, this is, I, I, this is a very valuable point that you raise. You know, like, I just think that a lot of Americans and Canadians, you know, um, just don't understand the darkness that exists in some parts of the world. And they kind of imagine that this, this is the, all the darkness is here, right? And, and that this is where all the problems are. And it's much worse here. Somehow they, they've come to this uh, understanding. They don't realize, you know, if you get rid of the safeguards, you know, there's some really bad things that, that, that will be very, very happy to come in and, and install themselves. Well, well, you see the failure of education, right? And that, that's been pushed, by the way, by China for, for 30 years, uh, pushing con com con communism agenda and, and socialism agenda into the schools. And, and you're seeing uh, them reap, reap the benefits of that today. Um, the, the kids have, have no clue. And it's funny, me as an immigrant, now American, right? Uh, you see... Um, the, the hate of, of some people born in, in the United States towards America. And that was grown from the education system. 
And honestly, they, they have never traveled. They don't know what's going on in the world. They've never been to Venezuela. They've never been to China, for sure. Um, they should. You know, I think uh, they would realize pretty quickly that, hey, the, the America is probably not as bad as, as they believe. And that's why it's the American dream. And that's why people like me move here to, to live and, and completely rechange their lives and, uh, you know, uh, completely adapt to this new way of, of uh, uh, of capitalism and, and thinking of, of innovating and, and bringing value to, to America. Um, it's scary that uh, schools are completely controlled now um, by these e e extremists and, and effectively dividing the nation. You know, I, I, so I want to talk about this. I mean, you, you of course, are French, and uh, you became an American. And uh, so why? Well, for me, it was always interesting how, uh, um, you know, the, the American values and the American dream aligned with my, my brain and the way I believe in things. And it was just a perfect fit. Uh, maybe I was born to be here and it just didn't happen. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's just weird how, you know, innovating and, and the, the way of, you know, France assisting people and holding their hand for every aspect of life and people abusing of the system. You know, you, you, I had employees, you know, take two weeks off because they had a pimple in the hand and they couldn't they couldn't type on a computer because they were they were, the, the pimple was was so disrupting their lives they had to take two weeks off of course fully paid by uh, by the French government and by my company right so so you will see this abuse because of, of healthcare being free and, and you know people don't understand the um, the luck they had to have access to that system and then effectively bankrupting it uh, by uh, abusing it and, and, you know, it, it's just interesting how um, people also see a success here as, as, a, as a good thing. You know, there's, there's, there's some jealousy, but it, it's not the same as in France. France, you become the target. You become the bad guy. You know, you're successful, right? Um, it, it had to be because of your dad or because of, you know, whatever um, help you got. It couldn't be because of your hard work and, you know, starting at 12 like I did and creating my first company at 15 and you know my, my, my family had, had no background in IT whatsoever and I didn't get any money from, from my, my parents but you know that's what people would assume right it's just the, 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 the socialism and the way France think about innovation and entrepreneur uh, in general is, is despicable and it pushes people to leave and, and, it, and suddenly you know the, the funding and the growth and, and, and kind of the opportunities it's just not, a, not, not, not that exciting, right? Um, and so people end up uh, leaving. And, and I think that's what it is here, you know, the American dream. Well, you know, you became American and you also, you know, left the private sector. Of course, we're incredibly successful in the private sector. I know you've sold a lot of products to some of these tech giants that we've been discussing. And, uh, but you decided to go a different way and take a significant pay cut and become this first uh, uh, Air Force chief software officer. And so just very briefly, before we get into what things look like today, um, how did that happen? Well, for me, that's actually started before the Air Force. I started at DHS. I was uh, the chief architect of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and that started because I wanted to make a difference. I literally became uh, part of DHS a month after I became a citizen. I could not help in any meaningful way before being a citizen. So I, I did everything I could to uh, line up my start date with my citizenship and, uh, you know, focusing on cybersecurity and, and quite honestly, that's where I saw how bad uh, critical infrastructure uh, um, is in terms of, of cyber defense. You know, the reason was really for me to try to make a difference. And, uh, you know, DOD was particularly exciting because that's where you can really save lives.
Well, so this is fascinating because on the one hand, you're saying that, you know, in terms of the mission, there is no better mission. This is where you, where you need to be. But you actually did leave uh, because, you know, of things you didn't like and you were very vocal about that. It's tough, right? I, I wish I could have stayed. I would have stayed um, as long as I could. I was a term appointee, so I only had, you know, three-year term. I could have extended to five. Um, so I lasted three, which is pretty good. Um, but I felt like, I, you know, I had to raise awareness. I was just tired of, of listening to the same people, even different people, talk about the same problem, not taking any meaningful action. And, and we're running out of time, and I saw China, you know, slowly but surely take us over when it comes to hypersonic, when it comes to quantum compute, when it comes to AI machine learning, um, you know, and, and, and yet, you know, the leadership at the Pentagon would talk about almost Sputnik moment, that was the term, almost uh, Sputnik moments, and it wasn't almost, it was a Sputnik moment, and we kept diminishing it and, you know, massaging it to the public so it doesn't look as bad and it doesn't look like we're failing, and then you've seen the Afghanistan debacle where no one is held accountable, and, you know, people get frustrated, and uh, I would have so many people reaching out to me in the department, uh, you know, complaining about what's going on, and, and at some point, you know, you're being muzzled and you can't just, you know, tell people what you think. Um, and, and with the new administration, particularly, I think I was already pretty vocal for someone in the government. Um, they were very concerned of me even having engagement with industry and, you know, sharing some of the threats with China. And, and that's where I felt like, hey, it's important for me to, to leave and be able to raise awareness, uh, make sure people understand that we have pretty much a year and a half to wake up. Uh, that was a year. That was a year ago, uh, to be able to compete uh, against China before it's too late, and that we're losing the battle, and not just uh, you know when you hear the leadership call China near peer adversary all the time, when it's not true, you know, and, and they're fighting the wrong battles. They're still fighting, uh, you know, the old school wars, uh, you know, that would not succeed against China. You're not fighting camels, you know. You, you're gonna face a real nation that's going to have real weapons and capabilities. Um, we're vastly unprepared. Every time we did a, any type of scenario in Taiwan, we lost communications in 24 hours. That's exactly what, what you see Russia uh, failing against Ukraine. Uh, the communication aspect is so essential uh, to be able to organize the, uh, any kind of battle. And, and so what you've seen with communication is, is a prime example of what would happen to the United States should uh, China go after Taiwan. So one year on, you know, have we learned our lesson yet? So it's, it's interesting because I, I, people ask me if I regret leaving. I think my coming out had a lot of positive impact. For example, the DoD created the first uh, chief uh, digital AI office, um, which was created to merge a lot of the silos around uh, digital AI, machine learning, and innovation. Uh, it's, it's, it, and they put a great um, individual, uh, Craig Maltel, uh, came from industry too, the commercial side, and he, you know, he can really get things done, and, and he's reporting directly to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, which is pretty rare uh, in DoD. So, so that, that tells you they, they wanted to uh, really get things um, uh, organized. The, the issue is the main objective was to create that office. We don't need more offices, right? And by office, I mean a, a, a team, right? I don't mean a, a physical office. Obviously, they're all at the Pentagon. But what you, what you see here is effectively the first 
goal of that new team is to effectively within 12 months build the team. And, and, and that's just mind-boggling to me, right? Instead of saying, hey, we need to have this weapon capability in 12 months with tangible outcomes to the world fighter, which is why we're here, we're just going to organize a bunch of people. And that's just not the velocity and the pace we need to be able to succeed at competing against China. So the, this kind of you know, bureaucracy mentality of saying, hey, we're going to create more bureaucracy in 12 months, and that's going to define whether or not we succeeded at uh, doing this engagement is a prime example of the leadership not comprehending the problem. We should be focused on solving uh, tangible outcomes for the warfighter with tangible capabilities that they can touch and fill in production in theater. And, and instead you see you know, people creating and merging offices in the Pentagon. Um, okay, so you're saying that the DOD is overly bureaucratic from what I hear, right? <laughs> yes. Um, but um, what about this raising awareness amidst the brass, amidst the people that need to be made aware of the issues? Are they aware now? I think what we did by leaving and, and being so vocal about it, myself and a few other people, we created kind of this momentum and this kind of uh, psychological safety, right? People now are able to talk. You've seen um, multiple people leaving the department. Recently, we just lost a, a bunch of great talent, more than I've ever seen before. In fact, it's actually pretty concerning because, of course, the people leaving are the good ones, not the bureaucrats. And so you see you know, people getting frustrated and, and leave. Um, you've seen recently Preston Dunlap, the chief architect of the Air Force, which was the most impactful person I've met in the department, full stop, creating most of the top innovations that I've seen coming out of, of the Air Force and Space Force in the last three years, decided to leave you know, uh, six months ago. Uh, you've seen you know, uh, some of the, the best innovators, doers, that actually do the work, not people like me and Preston talking about it, but people that actually get their hands dirty and do the work, uh, lower ranks, right, uh, that actually get things done. Um, some of my, uh, my team that we created called Platform One, uh, we had nine uh, initial founders in the government uh, and all nine left. Um, so literally we lost some of the brightest uh, talent. Many left to go um, on the commercial side, come back, sell to DoD, which is okay, but you know, the, the goal of government people is to have the best interest of the taxpayer uh, in mind. And, and so when you, you go on the, the dark side, uh, which is not really the dark side, but we call it the dark side, where you, you're going to come back and sell you know, back to the department, obviously you're not going to be objective. You're going you're gonna to want to make money. And it's, it's interesting how the duty has no problem paying much more an individual coming as a contractor than an employee of the government. Uh, the, the pay caps are completely ridiculous. Most people living ends up not only making you know, much more money, sometimes two to three times the pay on the commercial side. And so you know, the, the mission is so excited. We, we, we have this incredible mission that's attracting all these people. And yet we have a massive pay gap. And despite that, we still find good people. Uh, you can imagine if we were to solve this um, um, uh, uh, hiring nonsense and limitations of pay gaps, uh, you could really do a real damage in solving all these issues and attracting best talent. People want to come and make a difference. But are you willing, you know, when you're younger, uh, to walk away from a two through three times the pay? You know, people need to feed their family. 
You see, you see what fighter nowadays because of the inflation, not being able to feed their family and, and recommended to go to the food bank to get food. It's despicable. So, so let's say you did um, fix the pay gap as you're describing, you know, it basically that people could make competitive, competitive rates, right? Um, but what, you're saying the bureaucracy is still there, still limiting things. Yeah, but we can hack the bureaucracy, right, with the right people in the government jobs. The key is to have them in government jobs, not just as contractors, because contractors can't make decisions. They have to abide by whatever the government employees say. And so if the government employees don't know any better and you don't have the right expectation of timeliness, one of the reasons I left, too, was because I was becoming part of the problem. And so you become part of the problem. So I think it's actually pretty healthy to be able to leave and come back and leave and come back. The system is not designed at all for this. First, your clearance um, process is a nightmare. So someone coming from the commercial side, you know, it will be very painful to get through the clearance and the hiring alone and then the clearance process. And then, of course, if you leave, you can lose your clearance and then you can come back, right? So, it, 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 and that, none of that is done by accident. It's, it's, it's designed on purpose to create this DoD bubble. Just like we have the Silicon Valley bubble, I call it also the Kumbaya bubble, but the DoD bubble is this incompetence bubble designed on purpose to make sure that we limit the talent uh, so that the people coming from outside an industry um, have a very tough time even getting the jobs. Wait, wait, it's an incompetence bubble? Incompetence bubble. Um, that sounds terrible. You know, that's the issue when you have this self-sustaining bubble. People in the government end up leaving. You have 90 plus percent of the general officers leaving work for the top five primes uh, in the in the, the, the defense industrial base um, to come and sell back the stuff that they were trying to do in their jobs and failed at doing so. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, they, there's a lot of great people, right? But but they don't know what they don't know. You know, I always joke that if you take. Uh, uh, you know, the, the leadership at the Pentagon for two weeks at, at SpaceX, their brain will implode. They cannot grasp the velocity of the commercial side. And it's, it, the system is just poorly designed. You, you're in a building with no communication, no cell phone, right? You will be probably the last to know that there's an attack against uh, America one day if it happens at the Pentagon because we're completely disconnected, right? And so you probably will get a notification on your app from CNN or, or Fox News before you even find, we ever find out in the Pentagon. That tells you that uh, effectively this, this bubble doesn't get access to the traditional uh, methods and velocity of the commercial side. And so we need more people coming from the commercial side and, and leaving instead of just coming you know, into the government and then leaving to some of the primes to keep doing more of what they already know. They, they, they don't have the ability to see, wait a minute, this is how we're supposed to do business, right? If they were to go to startups or they were to go to SpaceX or Tesla, whatever company, right, that's innovative and fast and get things done, that's where you would see the return on investment. So one year ago, you said that there was a year and a half to catch up. Now we're one year in. How close are we? So not only we did not catch up, that's what raised me again. We actually let China take uh, lead in, in many things. The, the one thing we, we actually did pretty well is the hypersonic uh, side of the house. We uh, finally started to take more investments and getting th things done. China still has 200 plus hypersonic launches. We have probably 11 or 12 now. Uh, so still a pretty massive gap. And of course, the fear of failing, you know, that's why companies like SpaceX are so successful, right? 
they have this mentality of, hey, if we don't fail, we're not learning. In the department, uh, failing is bad. And so you're going to take the least amount of risk to innovate. And you just can't do massive innovations if you're always afraid of any kind of failure. And so what you've seen in the last uh, year really is a, a massive amount of people leaving the department. A lot of, a lot of it has to do probably with uh, the debacle in Afghanistan, uh, people not, not held accountable, uh, people getting away with uh, big mistakes and no accountability, um, people getting killed. And you know, the, the hiring is at the, its worst. Um, not only we have trouble finding new recruits because of the state of our new generations, uh, overweight, lack of eagerness to, to go you know, serve, um, you know, this mentality of America is bad, right? So you're losing a pretty big chunk of the population. Part of the reason why COVID was so bad in the United States is the population is so overweight. No one wants to talk about it, but it's what it is. And you can't have overweight people in the military. So that compounds a problem. And so you, when you look at all these things, that's what China is, is so good at, at fighting this war against the United States. Each of these different pieces are thought as a cohesive plan. We are so siloed, both in Department of State, DHS, DOJ, and, and DOD, that we don't understand how all of these things play together to create a cohesive plan. And we have no ability to respond to it. You know, as I listen to you speaking, it almost sounds like you are actually still in there, still thinking about this, still wanting to be there. So would you go back if you were invited? I would go back, but I don't know if they would invite me back. I think, depending on what happens in 2025, I think uh, we'll be back. Um, I think there is this um, issue when it comes to uh, being vocal about what happened. You know, a lot of the military is taught to keep things in the house, and that's all great. And I kept it for three years, you know, uh, diligently, until I felt like, hey, you know, you're all talking about the same problems for the last three years and I've yet to see you do, do anything to solve it. You know, and, and, and so the, the walk the walk piece was so important to me and, and, and to, the, to the nation. And honestly, I had no kids when I started. No, I have three kids under three because I, I had twins, uh, four, four years old now. Um, and, and, you know, the urgency and the fear and, and it was keeping me up at night. I just could not physically ignore it any longer because I felt like, you know, I'm failing my kids, you know, I'm failing our uh, American friends' kids if we don't take action now. And so we, we're running out of time and no one is doing anything about it. So at some point, what are you going to do? You're, gonna, you're just going to stay there and not be able to fix it? And, and honestly, with the administration change, um, you know, Secretary, Secretary Kendall uh, is a great uh, person, and I think he can really get things done. But but some of the appointees, unfortunately, outside of him, were picked to check boxes by the administration. It's about gender. It's about you know other things than competence. And honestly, these are important jobs. I don't care who you love and what you like to do in your life. But what I care is, are you competent? And you could find quite a few appointees right now that have no reason for being here in this building other than checking boxes. And I've seen people getting passed because they were white and male and they were great, very competent, you know, experts um, replaced by people that have no business being there. And, and you're going to go and report to these people and 
try to educate them. And so you, you're taking a step back. So you spend three years fixing stuff, getting momentum with the, the people, understanding the problem. I know you start back, but backwards. And it's, it's just so much work. And we need the best of, of the best, and we need to stop being divided. So, I mean, you're very passionate about all this. You're still very passionate about this work. Um, I, I don't think there is a new chief software officer at the moment yet. No, that, that tells you um, something interesting, right? When uh, the assistant secretary, Mr. Hunter, uh, testified in front of Congress for his confirmation, uh, he was asked, because I was living right at the same time, he was asked, hey, you know, software is important to the DoD, right? And he agreed. And they say, hey, so, so we assume that it's going to be your priority to, uh, to fill that, that role. And he, he said, yes, it's my you know, top, top priority to, to fill this uh, chief software office uh, role. And you're a year uh, after that, and, and they have not yet uh, appointed anybody, which can be done in, uh, for this kind of role, that can be done in, in 20 days, right? And uh, you know, they, they are still doing interviews, allegedly. I've yet to, to hear anything. Apparently, they have two people from the commercial side, one person from the building. Um, what's interesting is the people from the commercial side already told me that they have no interest anymore because they've been waiting for a year, right? With no, by the way, no update. You can imagine waiting for a job for a year with no communication whatsoever. No one wants a job like that. Uh, for something that should really take 30 days, it took me probably 45 days to be onboarded, and, and I'm, I, you know, I'm French and all the nightmare that goes with it with the paperwork. Um, so, so, you know, for most use case, it's a 30-day decision. Um, and, and my understanding is uh, not only other people left, so we have uh, an acting chief architect, we lost the chief software office, we're losing a lot of the cyber expertise. Um, there's also a DoD uh, chief software officer that was appointed after I left. Uh, he lasted a year. He left also very upset about the lack of eagerness to, to fix the, the system. Uh, Jason Weiss was uh, very competent and one of the best experts uh, in software in the building. He lasted 12 months, so I did pretty good with three years. Uh, Nick, uh, any final thoughts as we finish? I think it's very important for most Americans to understand the threat that the CCP is causing. This is not about China. Uh, the Chinese people don't really have a choice, but the CCP is an enemy here and I can tell you that uh, when you take a step back and you look at what's been done in the last uh, 25 years, uh, you're going to see a methodical uh, war against American interests. And the fact that most companies still refuse to engage with the DoD, if they struggle and they want to get it done, uh, they, they need to do it now. I can help them do that. Uh, this is something that's you know, a passion for me to I helped about 750 products get into the department. So getting best of breed and, and getting access to technology is how we're going to win. Well, Nicholas Cheyenne, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Nicholas Cheyenne and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.